Okay, welcome everybody to the First Impressions podcast. Um, this is a very special episode. I'm so excited about it. I am Kristen, and I am joined today by my fellow podcaster, Maggie, as always. Hello! <laughs> and we are live on Google Hangouts on air. And um, as I said, I'm super excited because today's episode is about... A mo- it is about a movie. It is a movie review episode of Ang Lee and Emma Thompson's Sense and Sensibility from 1995, widely beloved um, and beloved by both me and Maggie and Maggie's boyfriend, Bay, who considers all it all an <laughs> <laughs> which I think is so great to, you know, when Maggie was like, oh, that's one of Bay's favorite movies. I was like, he's a keeper. <laughs> Although it's funny because we we rewatched it um, in preparation for the podcast, and he was like, "Oh wow, I haven't seen it in so long. I forgot who everybody is." Blah blah blah. And I was like, "I thought you said this was one of your favorite movies." <laughs> so I think he was just saying that to get me to like him. Oh well, it worked, <laughs> and um, here we are. So good job, Bay. So I have. Oh, go ahead. Were you going to say something? Oh, I was just going to share a fun fact. That today, this afternoon, um, several friends and I, we actually attended a theater adaptation of Sense and Sensibility, coincidentally, at the Folger Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C. Uh, we have excellent regional theater here in the D.C. area, and they did a really great uh, play adaptation of the book. And then I came home and watched the movie again. <laughs> in the quiet of Sense and Sensibility Day. <laughs> Wow, you have been immersed for sure, yes. and um, I can't think of a better day. You lived my my. You're living your best life, Maggie. You're living oh, the best actually, life of an. Here's the kind of an an we went to. We also went to a, a Russian bazaar at Orthodox Church in D.C. before the play, and they had a book sale, and I picked up a copy of Persuasion, uh, but they also had a copy of Sense and Sensibility. So uh, we had the book, we had the play, and then we had the movie. <laughs> It's just following you everywhere today. Right. Oh, Jane Austen. <laughs> the ghost of Jane Austen. You're going to see her like come up behind me. Like the great pumpkin rising out of the pumpkin patch on Halloween. <laughs> She's everywhere. <laughs> she kind of is everywhere. And, and yes. And so this movie. So I have just finished. The tears have just dried on my face. From the final scene. Oh where... my gosh. So let me tell you a fun. So I did, we just finished rewatching it too. Like we, I watched it before and then I watched it again today. And we just finished while we were finishing up dinner. And it was at the big like wedding scene where it starts the wedding scene and you see them like coming with the streamers and he has like mm-hmm. the cake on top of the thing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm so happy. This movie makes me so happy. I think I'm going to cry. And Bay looks at me and it goes, is it because that cake is really good? And I was like, no, <laughs> the character is going to have the ending. <laughs> the cake. Although that just proves how well he knows me. <laughs> I kind of want some cake now too. Oh, sorry. Um, I was just, but so it's Kevin and my 10th anniversary um, coming up on Friday. And I was just going through all my pictures of him and um, I have a ton of pictures, obviously, of our wedding. And we didn't do the thing where we smashed the fate or the cake on each other's faces, but I, I did feed like him that. cake, and he just like ate the whole thing in one bite, like one big <laughs> chomp. You were there, and everybody laughed so oh, hard. Yeah, I was drunk. I don't remember. <laughs> that was ten years ago. I no. am not. A, I have to say that I am not a fan of the cake smashing, just because you spend so much money to get your hair and makeup done, right? Yeah. So then, why mm. are you going to smash cake all over my face? 
I don't know. It's so passive aggressive too. Kevin and I were more above that. They just walked in the room and pointed at me and said, it's happening. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know if he means like if we ever get married or if he means like later today. (laughs) (laughs) Or both. (laughs) Yeah. As long as I get to throw a drink in someone's face, eventually I'll be happy. Like the dream (laughs) of mine is just to like have a very like Dallas style cat fight. Just toss a drink. (laughs) I should point out though, that I'm actually not drinking tonight. So the people who are like, Maggie, you're much more lucid when you're not like, it's not always the case. Well, I am drinking. I, um, I made some pork tenderloin earlier today and the recipe called for red wine, which, you know, is always exciting. So now I have a whole bottle to finish and I went to the grocery store. I know, right? You got to finish it. You got to finish it. Otherwise it's wasteful. So introductory remarks on the movie. I won't bore anybody with like long meditations on why this is the best Austin movie adaptation, but I'll just say that I will say that I, I, I I think it is tied in my mind with pride and prejudice for best adaptation, but I do think that this um, movie diverges from the source material in very deliberate ways that actually help a modern audience understand the story. And I am behind the choices that they made 100%, but I did make some notes about them. I think it also diverts in ways that are better suited to a film medium. Yes. Um, It's similar with the Harry Potter movies for me, where I view the books in the film as just very, they're just separate. They're different. They're separate. Yeah. Um, it's like sometimes it's helpful to compare and talk about things that are left out But people who get really upset about things being left out. It's in service of the story and that you don't have 800 pages and like you do in a novel, you have a two hour movie. Um, right. You're going to have to leave some things out. And I just, I, for me, I love Pride and Prejudice. That was my gateway. Um, gateway gateway drug. drug. <laughs> yeah. But I think that this movie is a fucking triumph. And <laughs> I think that it is, I think it is the best film adaptation, television, movie, whatever, best film adaptation of a Jane Austen, full stop. And um, we're going to talk at, and, and we're going to give full credit at the end too, but um we did have a reader email us that an article that appeared in the Atlantic written by Devaney Lucer about the, um, the uh, changes that were made and sort of the idea of masculinity in the movie and how it is updated for not only for a modern audience, but during a time where our ideas of masculinity were evolving mm-hmm. a little bit. And mm-hmm. the first major thing that I think we can point out, um, and I don't mean to skip the start, but I was going to point out that the first major thing is that Edward, when he comes on the scene, he actually has a rapport, builds a rapport with Margaret. And that's how we know that he's a good guy. But let's start from the beginning and let's go chronologically because I don't okay. want to I, I don't want to run roughshod over anything that you were going to say. So the movie starts out with um, the father, um, Mr. Dashwood. I guess he never really Wilkinson. It's Tom Wilkinson, the actor who plays Mr. Dashwood is Tom Wilkinson, who is an extremely famous and well-known British actor. And he's in this movie for like a minute and then dies. Yeah. I was still like, holy shit, that's Tom Wilkinson. What's interesting is that this movie is principally about women, but the first scene is two men. And it actually is purposeful to show how these women are in a sphere of the man's sphere, you know? So what they're talking about is the transfer of money and property. Mr. Dashwood's going to die. He has his son, John, come in, say, John, Norland is yours in its entirety, and I am very happy for you. 
Yeah. But you can't forget the girls. Well, but also they, it, it points out, and I'm sure you'll mention this when Eleanor and Edward explicitly have this conversation that women in this time period have no ability to earn money on their yes. own. And the, their another... fate are completely decided by these men in their lives. They have no actual agency or independent power to take care of themselves. And that's more subtext made text by uh, Emma Thompson or whoever she was working with as well. I'm sure she bounced ideas off of people. But anyway, in the dialogue, and when we first meet Edward, and as we know from the book, he's feeling very unmoored. But the fact that she takes that together with their situation and puts that together and actually makes yeah. them have a explicit conversation about it helps us as um, viewers understand that even though he's this privileged man, they both share a little bit of the same problem. But then she gets to fire back at him and be like, well, you get to inherit your fortune eventually. We can't And have the opportunity her. to choose a career. Yes. He's like, I, as a woman, I actually have no ability to earn any income at all. Yeah. And it really helps us as viewers. And really, um, I think it's a point that the book it doesn't just never necessarily occurred to me when I was reading the book either, because the girls are so genteel. You never think of them as even thinking about picking up a profession because in Austin's time, that was right. not even what they would do. But well, as modern viewers, we know, I mean, it was known that. So this is what you were saying about making it more accessible to a modern audience. I mean, everyone reading this book when it was written knew that that wasn't a possibility because right. that's the world that it took place in. So I think adding things in like that for someone 150 years later is really important for us to understand, like, what is the context of the society? Where are we right now in terms of like women having rights? Like the, the law says you can't own property in this situation and it needed to be explicitly said. And another thing that makes us like him is that Margaret, the youngest daughter, is like this little proto-feminist in the movie, and they really yeah. draw her character out a lot, where she's That's interested in, <laughs> yeah, interested in piracy and geography yeah. and, and obsessed with this atlas. You know, it's not typical little girl uh, things. And Edward is all about that and on board with that and thinks that's fun and, and has a rapport with her over that. Yeah. And so is the, the introduction of Margaret with Hugh Grant, right? Um, and Eleanor. And so their problem is the problem that, you know, they conceive for the movie is that Margaret is shy. She doesn't want to come out. And Hugh Grant has this amazing line too, in the beginning, right? Where they say, Oh, you know, Mrs. Dashwood says, oh, I'm sorry about Margaret. She's a little shy of strangers at present. And Hugh Grant goes, well, I'm shy of strangers myself, but I have nothing yeah. like her excuse. Yeah. That's how we know. And then the scene where he, uh, Edward and Eleanor are together, Hugh Grant, and Emma Thompson are together trying to get Margaret to come out from under the table. This beautifully done scene where she Tavola, loves... Yeah. Uh, no, I believe the Nile is in... <laughs> Belgium. Yes, <laughs> Belgium. <laughs> Belgium. <laughs> and she comes out from under the table and she goes, the source of the Nile is in Abyssinia. Abyssinia. <laughs> <laughs> It's and they're like, oh, yes, you're right. I'm so glad that you're here to explain this to us. <laughs> yes. And they just they countenance her and they treat her very much like she's, an, a, you know, one of them. And that also makes you like them, really. Yeah. Um, and then um, and watching Edward and Eleanor's love grow is very believable through the yeah. medium of Margaret. I agree. I agree, too. And also because this one, once you see how like once Eleanor sees how he interacts with Margaret, even when she's not there, 
I think helps her develop those feelings and see that he's a really good guy. And his, um, you know, we know that he's being a little bit bad by, by staying there and, but his attraction to Eleanor is also evident to me. It's evident in the scene where he's walking down the hall. He's really obviously looking for her. He's, he looks down the corridor and she's there and Marianne's playing the piano, this beautiful piano piece. And she, um, he has the opportunity to keep walking and l- allow her to have this private moment. But instead, he stands there until she sees him. And then he offers her this handkerchief, which shows his real affection for him. Yeah, that was a really beautiful moment. They're so cute. They're so cute. And it's a perfect time to talk about the introduction of Marianne's character, of Kate Winslet's character, when the first time we meet her. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. She's playing, it's so, she's playing this mournful dirge and Emma Thompson comes in and she's like, man, play something else. Mama has been weeping since daybreak. And Kate Winslet just fixes her with this evil glare, just angry and changes the pages around and starts playing a new song. <laughs> even more dour, even more sad. <laughs> it meant something, uh, it meant something happier, dearest. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think, I think the first so she had like Kate Winslet as Marianne has a couple lines, like when they're talking about Fanny, like I've said yes. And I've said no. And that's mm-hmm. all I, sh- you know, things like that. But the first time she actually gets into her Marianne, this is when she's trying to show Edward how to read Shakespeare oh my God. and her first line reading. I just burst out laughing. Oh, it's so good. When she's like, um, no, you have to- the moonlit show, Nova, blah, da, da. And you're just yeah. like, oh, so, she's so funny. It's this, no voice divine, storm laid, no light propitious yeah. shone. When snatched from all effectual aid, they perished each alone. I know, <laughs> I've memorized it. Because <laughs> he doesn't get it. I have the Her line of that just made me burst out laughing because it she's so it's so funny but it's not over the top she's not being like a caricature no she's not she's just like a very earnest young in an acting class or something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like community theater or something yeah um, and I have the clip and I will put it in uh unless you want to listen to it I, I can just insert it into the podcast here of her doing that whatever you want whatever you want I we, certainly don't start to listen we to just it. saw it so I guess we can um just put it in no voice divine, the storm allayed, no light propitious shone. When snatched from all effectual aid, be perished, perished each alone. But I beneath the rougher sea, and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. No, Edward, listen. No voice divine, the storm allayed, no light propitious shone. When snatched from all effectual aid, we perished each alone. Can you not feel his despair? Try again. Yeah. And then he reads it and he reads it. He's, she's trying to like coach him and he's so awkward. And then she goes, she goes, again, again. try again. Try again. <laughs> it's so, so cute. And so that's it's our internet. Like it's almost like a pygmalion because we watched My Fair Lady recently too. It's, it's almost like a rain in Spain constantly yes. in the play. And he's like really tired and doesn't, and she's like, again, like, come on. <laughs> 
And, you know, one of the things and that makes this movie so good and well acted, if I could just go back to um, the Atlas scene for a second, because you were you were talking about Kate Winslet's acting and how it was so good in her reading. But the Atlas scene, um, Emma Thompson and Hugh Grant are both they play it like they're really trying hard to think on their feet. Yeah. You know, so they're filling in each other's sentences with like random places like Wimbledon, you know, and um, it's really well done as well. And um, okay. So we should also make sure to talk about. So at the beginning there, and I've just lost my train of thought, everything, everything Edward does is so thoughtful and then when we have enough moments between them to see them bonding. And um, then, of course, Marianne is not sure about how she feels about this whole thing and um, has that conversation with Mrs. Dashwood. She says, right. to love is to burn, to be on fire, like Juliet or Guinevere or Eloise. And, um, and then, then her mom goes, they met rather pathetic ends. And she goes, to die for love? What could yeah. be yeah, yeah. So we get that introdu- introduction of her over-the-top personality, too. Faye and I were talking about um, this through the movie, and he was like, you know, why does it – well, he wasn't saying why. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. I don't want to make it seem like he didn't get it, because he does. But he's like, why isn't? Why does no one really acknowledge that Colonel Brandon is actually, like, way too good for Marianne? You know what I mean? Like, he <laughs> – you know what I'm saying? He's like, she's kind of a dope. Which is very true. Yeah, he just came in here shaking his head. <laughs> she is a dope. She's like a teenage girl who would love Justin Bieber posters on her wall and freaks out at everything. And she doesn't see that Colonel Brandon's an awesome guy until the end when she's matured and gone on this kind of journey. And the journey the characters go on is how they grow and change to come to appreciate and deserve each other. Yes. And she does um, gain maturity, and that's when she's sort of rewarded by Colonel Brandon. And and Brandon is such a weird character. He allows women to make him putty in their hands. You know, every yeah. l- woman in his life just twists him around their little finger. For well, he's not a strong personality. He's like a beta male, right? He's a beta male, and and like that ar- that article is like this is our idea of of masculinity is the fact that these men. Not only they care about they care about the personalities of the women they're talking about. First of all, <laughs> you know okay. they're not all interchangeable. Like we were saying, you can't just plug and play like Mrs. Jennings wants to do. Oh, yeah. he's rich and she's handsome. I mean, that's the actual. Yeah, that's life. That, that, but that was kind of all you needed in a wife, right? So you either needed right. to have her have money or have her be hot. Like that was the only really requirement. Right. But let's talk to you for a second about Brandon and the introduction of Brandon to Marianne to skip ahead because I was just watching this scene and you made a point the other day that was so good. It's that every single still frame of this movie is like a painting. Yes. And I, Oh my God, I like just watching it again. It just like really drives that home for me. I thought it's incredible. It's like Vermeer, right? The Matt, the painter of light. Oh yes. Oh my God. Yes. And um, No, everything is framed in such a way. And when Alan Rickman comes in and we hear that song that was actually composed for the movie, it's a theme, the theme of the movie. Yes, my God. And it's so amazing. And, and we see Alan Rickman come in with this sort of amazed face of like, who's making this beautiful sound. And when he rounds the corner and sees her with the light coming onto her, this gorgeous angel, Kate Winslet, just playing and singing, 
Uh, and we fall in love with her too in that moment. And um, this sort of precious, young, beautiful, delicate songbird. And that's the kind of woman that we just know we learn from the beginning has always tortured him, fascinated yeah. him, roped him yeah. in and tortured him. He definitely and, has a type, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Just because, and El- everyone's talking about how great Eleanor would be for him. And while yeah. they're friends, there's no chemistry whatsoever. Um, so having jumped to Brandon, let's quickly talk about them moving from Norland right to the cottage and they tell they tell everybody at the dinner table and i just i thought of you because even fanny dashwood she goes oh a cottage a little cottage is also yeah. is always very snug <laughs> echoing what robert ferris says later <laughs> um but this is of course after they've had the passive aggressive exchange between fanny dashwood and mrs dashwood which I think is brilliant because it also sets up i mean obviously it sets up what happens with lucy because fanny's absolutely right I mean, that's pretty much Lucy's like modus operandi right there. Right. Like that's what she's doing. Um, And just because Eleanor isn't doesn't mean that Fanny isn't actually correct, but she just doesn't know that she's correct yet. Because this is actually already already happened. Um, And I I think that was really smart. Again, um, decision on the part of the filmmaker, because then you you set up kind of like now you understand why Edward would be considered because he's, I mean, talk about dopey, like Hugh Grant's kind of dopey. That's a shtick, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. He's like the asshole or he's like kind of an awkward dope. Um, so, which is kind of a weird dichotomy. Um, <laughs> so, but then you're understanding like, Oh, okay. So he doesn't have a job. He like is totally awkward, but people are still going to be trying to get with him because he's going to inherit all this money. Yes. And he's just, it's you know such a good guy that he's going to get roped into it. So that's very prescient of of Fanny, and Eleanor understands this better than Marianne or Mrs. Dashwood do. They are believers in true love. Mm-hmm. Eleanor understands that this may not happen because of the realities of the situation. So one of the things that I think is that portrays that just to take a step out of uh, chronological order again is when they do go to the cottage. And rather than coming in person, he sends the atlas, which is a cute gesture, but he's not going to go. You know, he knows he should oh, stay Oh, he's away. totally not good at confrontation at all. At no, all. He no. can't deal with it. And so um, Mrs. Dashwood's- kind of coward, right? Like, that's kind of a cowardly move. Well, no, well, let me question that, though, because in at this particular time, um, and in the book, he does go. But in the movie, not going probably means he knows he was in the wrong in trying to make Eleanor love him. I, well, no. Well, he says at the end, he says, "My behavior towards you at Norland was very wrong, but I convinced myself you only felt friendship." Yes, like he understood. He knows that he spent time with her and led her to believe that he was single when he was engaged, but he basically lied to himself and told himself that she only wanted to be friends. But we kind but, of know that he knew that wasn't. You know what I mean? Try to rationalize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the end of his time at Norland, he and Eleanor have this sort of delightfully and horribly excruciatingly awkward conversation in the stables. Stable, right? It's like the most un, I mean, in reality, you think that stables will be romantic, right? It's, they just come out like horseshit. Like they're not romantic places. He comes in and she's sad to be leaving the horse and, and he goes, cannot you take him with you? And she says, we cannot possibly afford him. And then he goes, well, perhaps he could make himself useful in the kitchen. And then he immediately <laughs> apologizes because 
he tried a dad joke out on a very serious situation. And while it was cute, he, he also, I mean, he's such a good guy, but then, but the, at the end of their time together in Norland, he does say, and they have this excruciatingly awkward conversation where she thinks he's about to propose. And then he says, I have something important to tell you about my education. Yeah. Well, you know, he was going to confess, right? Yes. He was trying to confess because he knows there's an expectation. And I think because we're supposed to assume that because he knows there's that expectation, he doesn't, go but um what when the atlas does come mrs dashwood uh, they're all sad everybody you know marianne and margaret leave and then mrs dashwood says to eleanor you must miss him eleanor and she goes on this long thing where she's like we're not engaged and her mom's like no but i know your heart must tell you he loves you and she's like you know even if he were to feel such a preference it would be foolish to assume and while she's saying all that stuff the camera pans out so that you eventually see them through two different doorways before they're they're in this tableau, mm-hmm. sort of giving you a feeling of Eleanor is shutting you out of her real feelings. She is sort of shut down. And even though the things she is saying are sensible, you do get a feeling of her underlying distress as the viewer, I feel. Yeah, Partially well, because I the, the way the way the shot is framed, it's it's a like a, it has taken her metaphorical compartmentalization in her mind and her heart and put it like literally on the screen to show how she is closing off this part of herself. Yes. And all the time, these um, well-meaning, but as we know, very unfortunately um, uh, uh, insensitive people uh, Sir John Middleton and Mrs. Jennings are laughing at her about the letter F and they have this hilarious scene in the, um, in when they, they first come to Barton, they're all at the dinner table. Right. And Margaret is all excited about the fact that she thinks that Edward is going to become a part of the family. Right. So she yeah. spills it. She's like, they're talking about, Oh, he's curate of the parish. I dare say, or mm-hmm. perhaps a handsome Lieutenant. And she goes, there is such a person and his name begins with an F. And then, and it's so great. These two characters just go on this riff, throwing oh. out names. <laughs> and I'm going to put that clip in because I adore it. Give us a clue, Miss Dashwood. Is he in uniform? He has no profession. Oh, no profession. So he's a gentleman then. Margaret, you know perfectly well there is no such person. There is. There is, and his name begins with Neff. Margaret. An F, indeed. Now, that's a promising letter. Let me... F, F. Uh, uh, Foster has one. Uh, Forrest? Yes. yes. Fotheringay? Fogarteen? Oh, yes. Fortescue. Fondant? Sir John, might I play your pianoforte? Yes, yes, of course. My goodness. Yes, we do not stand upon ceremony here, my dear. Kristen, can I tell you something that I, can I interject for a second? Yes. Something that I realized during this scene was, I was like, who plays Lord Middleton? Because he looks so familiar. And then I was just like, oh my God, there are, no joke, and, and they are all in one scene together later, five Harry Potter actors in this film. Oh yeah. Lord Middleton is played by the Freaking minister of Ma- is the minister of magic Cornelius Fudge. Oh yeah. Oh, so you've yeah. got you've got Emma Thompson who is Professor Trelawney. You've got Alan Rickman who's Professor Snape. 
You've got uh, Mrs. Dashwood, whose actual name escapes me, who is Nurse Pomfrey, Poppy. Oh, yeah. Also Bridget Jones's mom. Yeah, yeah. also Bridget Jones's mom. But so she's Mrs. Dashwood. You've got Imelda Staunton, who's Umbridge. And then you've got uh, Cornelius Fudge. Time out. This is going to blow your mind. Mrs. Jennings, who is not an actress I recognize. I had to look her up today to see what else she's been in. Do, she was in a Harry Potter movie, too. Do you know which one? She's in the um, first one. It, she's in Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah. Tell she me, is the fat lady. The Gryffindor oh my God, portrait. My <laughs> He's the fat lady in the pink dress. Yes. Crosswood. Oh my god. I know, right? I know. Six, six Harry Potter actor. <laughs> yep. Well, as we know, every British actor, more or less, except for That's Hugh Laurie. That's a lot. I, I that just goes to show you how good the actors were they got for this movie. And the, but they've all got to be in some kind of cool click kids club where they're all like, let's do this project. And everybody else is like, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure that they, I mean, just like here, you have some actors who are like Joss Whedon, right? He always has his people he goes to. Yeah. Um, there must be people in Britain who have that same kind of relationship. I mean, we talked about it before with Hugh Laurie specifically. I think we mm-hmm. mentioned him. And Stephen um, Fry. Yeah, exactly. So you're going to have like, oh, well, who do we, oh, you know, let's look at Kate Winslet. Like, I love her. She's great. <laughs> Yeah, that was one of her early uh, movies. It was right? pre-Titanic. I think this was before Titanic. It was like basically her first big role, I think. She was still building her career. And somebody told her that during when she was becoming an actress that she was only going to get the the fat friend roles. Can you believe I, I that? I can't that even talk about that with her. Because, she's the most like, gorgeous woman. And in that movie, she's... People have called her fat, which I just don't understand. I think it's honestly, I think it started... Part of it was that James Cameron made some crack about how there wasn't enough room for her and Jack on the, she and him did not get, my understanding is that the two of them did not get along during the filming of Titanic. Um, and he like made some crack about how like Jack couldn't fit on the, he called her like Kate Wales, like Wales weighs a lot. Like Winslet. Yeah. Like he was really rude. Um, and made a lot of cracks in the press and stuff about her weight. And that's kind of what I think kicked off this big, like, Kate Winslet's fat thing, which is ridiculous because she's clearly not. Especially in this movie, she is so breathtaking. She's just, well, she's just a beautiful woman anyway, but she's just like, she's over in her life. She's probably not been like the Hollywood size zero, but it's whatever. There's a lot of, yeah. I'm sure she's sick of having to answer that question in magazine interviews and stuff, you know? Yes. And anyway, so, she is beautiful. Of course. <laughs> yeah. And, and a beautiful actress. She is just wonderful. And, like, and amazing in this movie. And amazing is Marianne. And so many of her line readings in this movie, I can hear syllable for syllable exactly in the pitch and intonation that she says them. And they just, they just stick in your head. Um, and I was keeping a little live blog of the movie as oh I was God, watching so it. Cute. How cute! <laughs> because I was like, I want to read it. One of the <laughs> one of the things she says that I always think in my head is: so after they come to the cottage, just one of the many illustrations of Marianne's selfishness is that there's this this little interstitial scene where they get into bed. Eleanor gets there. It's cold. It's in the middle of the night. Eleanor blows out the candle. She gets into bed, <laughs> and Marianne Kate wants it. Yeah, she goes, your feet are cold. Yeah. Like, 
Well, you yeah. see her like Emma Thompson. She's like puts an extra because they have to share rooms, right? Because she specifically says earlier in the movie, like we don't need four bedrooms; we can share to save money. She like puts an extra blanket on the bed, gets up, takes a shawl, wraps it around herself, blows out the candle, gets under, gets comfortable, and then you just hear, "Oh, feet are cold." And then she has to get up and like get the socks and put them. On. And even little scenes like that, though, like. It just shows that Eleanor is always the one who, like, Eleanor takes care of Marianne, always. Yes. Um, so, and I feel like Marianne is a very difficult character. So it, these two characters, Eleanor and Marianne, I think it's even harder in the movie to do them justice. Because, well, first of all, the book is narrated from Eleanor's perspective a lot. So we know she is like, as Faye mentioned, we were doing this. He's like, this is a really hard role to act because a lot of it has to be interior, like a still waters run deep thing, right? Because the whole yes. point is that she doesn't show the emotion. So for Eleanor, you have to have an actress of that caliber where you can see what is happening beneath the surface. With Marianne, it's almost the opposite where you have to have someone who can be that sensibility, but be likable. Like yes. it would be so easy to have someone and be just like, Marianne's the worst. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand why you like her. She's a jerk. She's selfish. But Kate Winslet does a beautiful job, but you still like her. You still empathize with her. You wanted to talk about the scene where she comes in and Eleanor's in bed. And I think it was very well executed. And you do still find Marianne likable um, in this scene where Eleanor, I didn't want to talk about it if you wanted to talk about it. Oh, you go for it. Where Eleanor, so it's back at, at Norland and, and Eleanor is in bed and Marianne still has this question in her mind, like, can, can he love her? You know, can, can the soul really be satisfied with some polite, such polite affection? So yeah. she goes to her sister and she says, do you really love Edward? And Eleanor being the reserved person that she is, she can't go over that cliff without some belief that he's going to return her love. So she says, I do not attempt to deny that I feel, I um, think very highly of him, I that I greatly him. esteem him, that I, I like him. And Marianne gets upset and she makes fun of Eleanor, but it's not in a cruel way. It's an acute way. Praise indeed. But he shall have my unswerving devotion when you tell me that he is to be my brother. How shall I do without you? do without me. I'm sure you will be very happy. But you must promise not to live too far away. Marianne, there is no question that that is, there is there is no understanding. Do you love him? I, I do not attempt to deny that I think very highly of him. That I greatly esteem him. I like him. Esteem him. Like him. Use those insipid words again and I shall leave the room this instant. Very well. Forgive me. Believe my feelings to be stronger than I have declared, but further than that you must not believe. Is love a fancy or a feeling? Or a fair is it? I do not attempt to deny that I think very highly of him. That I greatly esteem him. That I like him. Like him? (laughs) 
But that's before she felt like sisters, right? They feel like sisters. Yes. They have a good sisterly rapport. And then Marianne mimics her voice. She's like, I did not attempt to deny that I, I think very highly of him. And it's it's cute. And they do have the rapport. They do feel like sisters. Exactly. Um, and it's an, there's another great moment. And Eleanor teases her back. There's another great moment. After Willoughby comes, rescues Marianne, deposits her on the couch. And um, he leaves. And, and Kate, uh, Marianne and her mother are both saying, what an amazing gentleman. He expressed himself with such honor, such decorum and spirit and wit. And Eleanor says, and economy, 10 words yeah, at most. 10 words at most. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. So that scene though, where he carries her into the house and they don't know who he is. Like this just stranger comes in with their sister who's injured, but um, they immediately, you know, put her on the couch or the settee or whatever. And Eleanor goes and gets like a pillow for her feet I love this. Oh my gosh. And the whole time her mother's like flitting about and talking to Willoughby. Eleanor is just looking at Marianne and making these great faces like, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's so cute. It's not like a judgment. Cause I mean, she does take her to task a lot for her closeness with Willoughby. But when it, when he first comes in, Eleanor is like, Oh my gosh, like is this happening? Like what is she? She's like, like I completely agree that she can participate in the excitement and she does feel for Marianne and knows this is what Marianne wants. And there is that great line too. She's like, You need a cold compress. And Marianne's like, What care I for colds when there's such a man? And Eleanor goes, tomorrow when your nose swells up. Yes, you, you are right. right. <laughs> Call me Eleanor. <laughs> <laughs> that you are I, right is one yeah, of my I think own. I think moments like that are really important again to like make them both likable and establish their sister relationship and they love each other and they can have that rapport and joke and yeah take care of each other and what do you think of the Willoughby in this movie how does he how does he fulfill the Willoughby of your mind I think well his um his sideburns are fantastic yeah, right. First of all, uh, I was talking about this with some friends that were at the play with me earlier. He's he's got that like '90s kind of wavy, writer strong, and Boy Meets World haircut. That like very <laughs> '90s skier. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. just, um, I think he was fine. He was actually Emma Thompson's boyfriend. Really? When they were filming, no. I think that's correct. She and Kenneth Branagh were not together, and she was dating Willoughby. Emma Tom- Thompson. Wow. He's Which not really great. in anything else that I know of. He's not. Not that I know of. I mean, I'm sure he's been in British stuff, but I don't know. But I thought he was fine. Very I mean, good. yeah, he doesn't I, I, seem like a scoundrel when you meet him. No. And some of the, some of the scenes he has are excellent, especially when they're all together after the picnic at Delaford, Delaford and Colonel Brandon runs off and he starts to talk about why he doesn't like Colonel Brandon. Yeah. And it's it's very it's very well done where he knows he's being um, illogical, Rude. cruel, Rude. without a reason, and so, so he starts saying things like, "I cannot persuade him to buy my brown mare." He's found fault with the hanging of my curl, and then then they they say, "Well, he's very well respected at the cottage," and he goes, "Well, that's censure in itself, isn't it?" And starts making fun of Mrs. Jennings. Come, come, Mister Impudence, and like. Um, and he like picks up Marianne and swings her around. And- yeah, that's a really well done scene. Um, even though it gets, it goes into this really goopy romantic place where he's like, as much as I love this cottage where you think he's going to declare. Cottage. Yeah. <laughs> the cottages. Um, Everybody loves cottages. 
it never goes too much for me. It never goes like, okay, this is unbelievably goopy. You I know, think his me. acting was great. I think that the one of the things that this movie does really well upon your second viewing is once you know the truth about Willoughby and you can look at his character and his behavior through that lens when he's like Brandon, you're just like, oh, like shut up. Because you know that he has seduced and impregnated Brandon's 15-year-old ward, right? Yes. So the fact that he's going to talk smack about Brandon, it's just like, no. Just it's mess, no. totally messed up. Yeah. And I will say I was watching too, to skip ahead again, he he does not get to come and vindicate himself no. as he, he does. He in goes the up at the very end. He sees her wedding to Brandon. He watches mm-hmm. from horseback, which I thought was a really great way to do it because it does show that he regrets losing her. And I think Brandon is the one who says, when he tells the truth to Eleanor, he tells her, like, I do really believe actually that Willoughby intended to marry your sister and he did love her. But we never have Willoughby say it. But having him show up at the end and his face kind of communicates that, I think. You know, another time I think he communicates that is when he bumps into them in London at the party and she shrieks oh, Willoughby. Face, and he's just like, <gasps> yes. And his like total shock and fear and like, oh, God. It's so painful for him to have that conversation. His distress and his discomfort is evident. He's not cold. I mean, the things he says are are cold. But his manner... Like beneath the surface, you can see that he is like really struggling with what is happening. Yes. And and has to run away, but feels extremely... It feels bad about it. And um, that's... I mean, what did you think of him though? I think that the actor did a fine job. I think he was handsome, dashing, everything he has to be... Yes. To be Willoughby. One of the things I like about it is that even though you do get um, a little bit of Sir John's and Colonel Brandon's like dislike of him at that first scene where they're all at the cottage together. How does he do? How do you do more like, you know, um, you get a little of that. So you're like, "Mm, maybe this guy isn't good. But you know what they don't do is they don't have him come in and play it a little bit dodgy. You know, they don't telegraph it. not let on that he that there's awkwardness. Yes, they do not let on at all. Like, he doesn't seem like over, like, I don't know about this dude, you know? Um, and, and that's what I, I, I appreciated about it. And, do you um, think that when, when Colonel Brandon gets the letter that calls him away at the last minute, because Willoughby is there, right? Because they're about to yeah. go for this, like, picnic. Yes. And then Willoughby, when they're on the picnic without Colonel Brandon, he starts ripping into Colonel Brandon and being a jerk. Do you think he knew what was in that letter? Like he knows why Brandon had to drop everything and leave and what it actually is. I truly, I do not based on what the, his, his character in the movie and how he acts. I truly do not believe that. He says that. He probably thought it was just business related. Yes. Because he does not seem scared enough because what ultimately happens. So it seems like a big shock when the news gets out and he gets disinherited and kicked out of his um, like relations house. Yeah. And you're like, why is this happening? And let me stop and make a side point that occurred to me while I was watching the movie. I typed it out in all caps. What do you think about this? When we're talking about Edward, the person who controls his inheritance is his mother. When we're talking about Willoughby, the person who controls his independence is Mrs. Allen. In both cases, it's women who have control. Kristen, that is a fascinating point. So the Dashwood sisters have no control over their fortune. It's in the hand of the men in their family. Whereas our male romantic leads, I mean, not Colonel Brandon, but 
and our young male leads, because you know Colonel Brandon's about to die, he's so infirm. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, their powers are con- by these older women. So that is fascinating, actually. I, I, I don't know if it was intentional in any way on Austin's part to say like women are complicit sometimes in this power structure too. Yeah. Well, I think everybody the, was right. I mean, if that's the, it's like a hate the game, not the player. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they were, they're fortunate enough that their husbands or fathers, however they got their money, had the wherewithal to set it up so they could inherit because obviously women could, there are women in this story who have the power. Miss, uh, Miss Gray Yes, thousand pounds. He has fifty thousand pounds. Um, and then she so has control. I don't know what it was about the Dashwoods situation that made it. Maybe you have to be like your only heir as a female. I mean, no, I don't so know. There's this that. whole thing at the beginning of Sense and Sensibility, the book, where it explains why they don't inherit, and it's this whole long that's kind of boring, explanation. Yeah, so we don't have to worry about. It. But there is an explanation. When we do our podcast about um, arcane British property inheritance law. Probably <laughs> we talk about it. <laughs> but so moving on, the net, the other thing that happens at the Delaford picnic. What? Sorry, they, like he's talking to me off screen, and I can't follow what's going on. The other thing that happens at the note. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he should be like passing you notes. I know he wants to comment. I know he does. You yeah, should just come on the podcast and, and talks to me. And I'm like, what? Like, I'm trying to listen to what you say. <laughs> and he's like, at me. Like, or passing me his phone with like a note written on it. And I'm like, <laughs> um, well, I think that oh. for the final episode perhaps or something you think we can get they and kevin on at the same time yeah i think they should do those guys alone should just do a jane austen podcast oh my god oh my god okay we'll do an april fool's day episode <laughs> where it's the guys do like an hour long <laughs> yeah, yeah. so great i love this idea so Faye just passed me a note that says marianne keeps all his books at the end Oh, 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 okay. This is something I pointed out at the very end when they get the, when uh, Thomas, the servant comes into the cottage and gives the news of, oh, I I ran into Mr. Ferris and Mrs. Ferris in Exeter, you know, and like still says that he's married. um, Eleanor and Margaret are working on French. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And Marianne looks like she's actually doing the accounting. Like she's doing the books at the end. Oh, oh the books. that's what you meant. Okay. Sorry. Yes. Um, if you look, she was like, she has her little work apron on and she has like a list. It looks like an inventory and she's like got her quill and it looks like she's actually doing an accounting. Not only that, but after, and, and if we're going to, if we're going to talk about that, not only that, I made a lot of notes about how she asks, did Mrs. Ferris seem well to Thomas? And when should, Edward comes, I mean, her maturity through is very much shown after her illness. I think her change. Yes. And in the and it may, and what happens in the end is uh, in the book is Eleanor rejoices in the dryness of the roads, and in the end in the movie it's actually Margaret and Marianne yeah. saying this piece of nice weather. <laughs> yes, yes, and um, it works for the book and it works for the movie too. Because in the movie, if Eleanor was to be all cool and collected, we it would break the feeling of tension that is ratcheted up. You know, and we're so emotional for her. So I think it worked out great both times. But um, so they think the movie should be called Sense, 
and sensibility where sense is spelled C-E-N-T-S. Oh, like, bang, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But it was, and we're going to just revoke his producer credit. Because let's be honest, he doesn't do anything. <laughs> but to make sure we get all of this, so um, – Lucy Steele and the Delaford picnic. What I was going to say is at that point in the movie, it's like about an hour into the movie. That's when Lucy Steele gets introduced. Yes. And it's so weird because she says, you know, she's introduced and Charlotte Palmer, who is also there. That's also when we meet Imelda Stoughton and who yes. like they're there and they're there in the book too, right? They show up before they go to Cleveland. We know who they are. They hang yes. out. Yeah. Yes, yes, and and um, Mr. Palmer says very droll things and is always out of humor. Oh, you're so droll, Mr. Palmer. You hate me, and it's hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> and Imelda Stone says, "Oh, Lucy, uh, Lucy Steele. All she could talk about on the way over here was Miss Dashwood, this Miss Dashwood, that." And you're immediately like, "Why does she care about Eleanor so much?" And then when she corners her and does the big reveal, you're just like shocked to the core. But in, it's basically like the first time they meet. Lucy's like. Stashwood, can I trust you? Yes. Her, she's so simpering. Oh, I just yes. And we, they have to make her like, uh, and that I think that actress did a very good job of oh, being yeah, simpering. Uh, just really, really, where at first she's plausible, maybe she is cute and nice. And there's this scene where they're going to London after the whole disclosure, where Lucy Steele, she's really twisting the knife and she's saying, oh, they're in the carriage. They're like all riding in the carriage together. Yes. And Lucy yeah. was saying, I know Edward wouldn't mind me telling you because he trusts you. He thinks of you like a sister. And that's when they both know for sure. They both well, know what's going on. Lucy looks at her when she says that. He thinks of you like a sister. Yes. Oh, I'm a And it's like, oh my God, girl. No. You notice the, the body language in that scene. Lucy is all up on her, like, you know, like really close, like almost like leaning over her. And Eleanor is like, uh, you know, like I'm Thompson's like not trying not to make eye contact. And she's like, yeah, I get it. You know, like we're <laughs> another great moment in, in that scene is when um, Mrs. Palmer is just like babbling on and on. And they talk about Willoughby and she's like, to think you can see his house from the top of our hill. And Marianne, it looks like she's trying to block it out and sleep. And then as soon as she says that her eyes pop open and you know that she's going to find a way to get there. With that, when she says that, and you know, like as an audience member, you're like, "Oh, that is going to come back into play." It's gonna, yep, she's yep. Filing that information away, and uh, that's still at the at the party, right? Uh, when they're talking the when they're going to London, but at that party, before we move on from uh, where they all decide, where Mrs. Jennings is like, "I'm going to take all you guys to London," and everybody's like, "Yay!" Except for Eleanor, who's just had her heart broken that very minute by Lucy Seal. Um, we have to just do an aside and talk about the comedy because there is a line in this movie that makes me burst out laughing every time I think of it. Elizabeth Spriggs, the lady who plays Mrs. Jennings, is just a top-notch actress. And um, it the, also the implication is that Mr. Palmer married Charlotte Palmer for Oh, my God. Movie. Yes, yes, yes. We were talking about this just today where I was like, this is so wrong. Yes, where he's always okay. treating her badly. And so... She uh, she says, if only this rain was st- would stop. If only. If only this stop. rain would stop. And Hugh Laurie says something like, if only you would stop. And then they all laugh because he's mean again. And, yeah. and, and, and Mrs. Jennings goes, twas you, took her, twas you took her off my hands, Mr. Palmer, and a very good bargain you made of it too. And now I have the whip hand over you, for you cannot give her back. 
And then <laughs> it's like Mr. Mr. Jennings and her daughter crack up at like ah, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> oh, if only this rain would stop. Only you would stop. <laughs> Twas you took her off my hands, Mr. Palmer, and a very good bargain you made of it, too. And now I have the whip hand over you, for you cannot give her back. <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, this is awful. They are rejoicing and joking about the fact that Charlotte is so awful. That her husband <laughs> hates her, and oh, ha ha ha, just on you, you can't get her back. Oh, oh. And like, I think they're just so inappropriate. So inappropriate. They're so inappropriate. And the um, the other thing that this movie does so well is the ceaseless, relentless joking from Mrs. Jennings about Mr. F. And all the while, Lucy is dig- you know twisting the knife. And there's this thing shoved right in both of their faces, Mr. S, Mr. F, Mr. F. And it's like so obvious that, yes, we all recognize, but it's unspoken that we're talking about Edward Ferris. And so Eleanor is really living in this hell of constant references to Edward. And um, I I think it's much more intense in the movie even than in the book. Um, And again, I think, and again, this is something that's in the book, which is another reason why we like Marianne. They show how, it gets her like she gets offended on behalf of Eleanor because she knows how deeply Eleanor feels things. And I think they show that in the film too. Yes. You see Kate Winslet be like, Oh, it's just really happening. Like we, um, by the time though, that we get into London, Marianne has just become this sort of ghost of constant writing to Willoughby and, and sort of being so absent to everything, but her own desperate need for him at that. It's really overwhelming. And the fact that she's writing to him makes everybody around her gossip that they're engaged, right? And she's so it would be inappropriate for her to write to him otherwise. Yeah. And one of the, the comedic things they employ to show how intense she is is that um, uh, Mrs. Jennings has this servant, Pigeon. He's <laughs> like, no, uh, no letters. <laughs> and then the, the night after she sees him at the ball, she's writing and it's midnight and then the camera pans to this bell ringing on the wall. and It's very Downton Abbey, right? Yeah. He has to go up there. And he, they, like, she opens. <laughs> his wig is on crooked. <laughs> yeah. He's like, on his way out the door, just like took it and put it like. <laughs> He's like so irritated. It's like, oh, I, I think that is so funny, though. And I, I noticed that, too, when we were watching it. And it, he's like, I do not have time for your teenage drama. <laughs> Like, bitch, I am trying to run this house. Yeah. Right? Like, I have better things to do. <laughs> yeah. I really enjoy how much little asides and throwaway lines there are about Mrs. Jennings' housekeeping and her talking to him and saying, like, you know, um, talking, you and Cartwright must work that out for yourselves. And when she comes in, she said, and it's this throwaway line again, she talks, there's a parrot there. And she comes in, she goes, oh, there you are, Pooter. Alive, I see. <laughs> like the little lives in this movie. Have in her house. Like this, these yeah. are must be the most long-suffering servants. I know. <laughs> I know it, right? But basically, they probably just basically run the house, right? Like she just yeah. kind of shows up and is ridiculous. So speaking of, uh, so this is something that uh, they told me to make sure to mention because it was something that he and I talked about. And so if I could skip ahead just a second, mm-hmm. we're talking about little moments that just add to the overall feel of the movie and the quality of it is. Um, 
another late night um, summoning, which is when um, Marianne gets sick at the Palmer's house. Yes. And you see Eleanor knock on Mr. Palmer's door in the middle of the night and wake him up. And she says, Mr. Palmer, I think Marianne is ill. I think we need a doctor. And Hugh Laurie has this moment where, so a lesser actor, when that happened, like Marianne is sick, I think we need to call for a doctor, would have just said yes immediately and gone off to like show how like dire the situation is, right? But Hugh Laurie is so amazing that he takes this beat where he just kind of looks to the side and you can see in his head, he's thinking, can I ask her if I can wait until the morning? It's the middle of the night. I'm really tired. Do I really need to go right out? And then he's like, of course. Yeah. I'll go get the doctor and leave. Yeah. You know, he's like, yeah. yeah, of course. But he's just, it, it's just, I, for some reason, that moment has always stuck with me in this film where it just felt like such a real person thing. Yeah. Where it is an emergency, but like you can't help but your first thought being like, oh God, why is this happening now? Like it's, uh, and you know what I mean? Does that make Yes, you make complete sense. And I know exactly the moment that you're talking about. And as a viewer, as a viewer, I was like, not sure because he's not the nicest character. Yeah. So well, you, I mean, he's, it's, it's more explicit in the book that I, he does like the Miss Dashwoods. Like that yes. is said in the book, right? Because he's very quiet. And obviously his wife is, a, we'll say dope again. Like she's a total dope and he's very rude to her and I don't want to say like abusive, but obviously he has disdain for her that he makes yes. clear to everyone. Yes. But he does actually like Eleanor and Marianne. Like he will talk to them and be nice to them. Yes. Um, so when Eleanor knocks on his door in the middle of the night, he knows it's an emergency. Um, and then when, before they leave the house, he says, anything you need, I will stay. Like if you need me, I will stay anything you need. Yeah. And he's a delight. Hugh Laurie is a delight. And you're kind of delighted in this sort of minor thing where you, it turns out he's a, a nice guy. Yeah, it's um, played for laughs. His wife is paid for laughs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, remember when he's holding the baby? He's holding, I was just a bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> like, he likes children. He just doesn't see anything about his own child that distinguishes it from any other baby, right? Like, that's been <laughs> in this show. He's like, holding the baby away from himself yeah <laughs> and then okay so i just want to make sure that we got that a little bit in because i just for some reason that has even before i know who knew who Lori was when i first saw this movie before he was famous yeah as house i just always remember thinking that that's how i kind of always feel when when the phone rings at 3 a.m your first thought is something horrible has happened and then the second thought is like, why is this happening to me? You know? And that's, that's the beauty of this movie is that the big moments are all perfect, but the little moments are all adding so much to it. And we kind of, I will talk about my moment that I think of. Um, I have probably five top moments that I, I think of, but from a filmmaking perspective, when Willoughby leaves and Marianne is devastated, they come home, they find Marianne weeping and Eleanor is like, something's wrong here. And Mrs. Dashwood gets all upset. And then she starts to cry too. And she goes to her room and Marianne is crying in her room. And then Margaret, who has made tea for Marianne, says, she finally says, she will not let me in and gives the teacup to Eleanor and slams her door and starts crying in yeah. her room because she has <laughs> taken, she has taken the influence of her mother and sister and also become histrionic, right? And then Eleanor, what does she do? She takes the teacup. 
She's just on the landing. She just sits on the stairs and she just takes a sip of tea. And the, 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 you see it from above and the roundness of her brown bonnet and the roundness, this round circle of the brown cup of tea is the most beautiful visual. Mm-hmm. I know that's a weird thing to bring up, but, but when that first struck me, I just th- realized, made me realize how much detail went into the making of this movie. Yeah. I think they made a good point. We were watching it that, you know, only, um, is he Japanese or Chinese? Oh, he's Taiwanese. Okay. Um, the way that he uses uh, the scenery and nature to set the scene and like Norland is this perfect idyllic countryside, right? English countryside. It's always green and lush. We don't really see the dead leaves that Marianne, Um, but every time there's like, there's these flocks of perfectly fluffy white sheep. Oh, yep green and lush and then when they go to the cat the cottage is still like the area around that is still nice but it gets dingier like when you go to london things get much dingier in the city um but the way he utilizes nature and i just feel like it's almost we talked about painting he is like a master artist creating these visuals for us and a lot of you can kind of feel like where he's coming with his um his kind of like Asian background and approach to it. I think the way you look at it and you wouldn't think it would work. Um, but they made the point that uh, he would, he understands the subtleties of the culture and the society at the time, because we were talking about J- uh, Japanese culture specifically because we're going to Japan soon. Um, they have much stricter, how do I say, much more formal rules of social interaction, depending on, your relationship to people, your status in the community, how much money you have, who they are, what is the power mm-hmm. relationship? Yeah. So, so this kind of of culture in the Regency period, he he understands. Why. But you get what I'm saying. Like you might be yeah, wondering, well, yeah. why, why is like a Taiwanese filmmaker making this movie? And <laughs> like, he actually really gets the subtlety yes. and makes it look beautiful at the same time. And um, there are so many things that apparently he included, like not only, and I know we've talked about this before, but when Marianne's walking across the field and the two lines are converging, um, but also on a lighter note, there's a scene in London where they're walking around and there are all of these machines doing crazy things around them. It's just one scene, but apparently he only got really interested in these steam powered machines that were becoming popular in the Regency era at the time. And he was so fascinated by them. He put them in the scene. Like he wanted it to feel like London. He did his research. And um, as we're saying, everything is so, uh, is so good. Um, But one of the things that we talked about before when we were doing the North Anger episodes is North Anger Abbey episode is we talked about how it felt like you were watching real people in a real society. It wasn't like the, the 19, the, uh, was this, were both of this in Pride and Prejudice in 1995? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, the 1995 Pride and Prejudice, it's much more, I don't want to say whitewashed because you know, like everyone's white, right? Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like it felt much more, it didn't really feel ever dirty or, um, but in this, like you did get the feeling London was dirtier than yes. the countryside. And when they go, you know, when they go to the ball, like you can only see the feathers. It's really packed. It's really hot. It's tight. Not only that, but um, what does Mrs. Jennings say when they're getting out of the carriage? Watch out, dear. The horses have been here. And they have to, like, they show them, like, it's filthy. Like, yep. there's horse shit everywhere. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I step in it. Yep. Yep. Um, 
And so, okay. So we talked about London. We talked about, you know, um, you want to talk about, um, well, let's talk about the disc at the ball. Cause that's speaking of the ball. Oh yes. So we had sort of talked that the, uh, the disc at the ball in more detail. Can you put in a clip of Kate Winslet just going, Willoughby? Yes. Will you not shake hands with me? Which God, that line. Willoughby! And everyone just like freezes because she's basically like yelled across the entire room, this desperate, shrill cry. And I want to convey his name. That heart, the heartbreak of that situation. I was trying to get a clip of what she says when she goes to the door, Sophia Gray turns around and has this incredibly disdainful. Look oh my God. Face. That is another, ever since I was a kid, she turns her head. She is like, obviously wearing the like board. She is the quintessential Regency pillar, right? Yes. Cause that was what the, the Greek pillar, that's what they were supposed to look right. like. Swan neck seen from behind slowly turns her head. You just see her eyes look them over. She gets this look of disdain, yes, right? Yes. Where and then in the it's very hard in the background, but you can hear her say, he's like, oh, they're just friends of mine from the country. Yeah. yeah. And she goes, wearing their country fashions, I see. <laughs> and just turns her head. And then just turns her head back and does not even look and it's humiliating. It's like such a sick burn, but it's such a humiliation for the two of them. And the line to be just discounted. Yes, it is. It's and then to to have that heartbreak and then the line, go to him, Eleanor. Force him to come to me instantly is what yeah. Marianne whispers. And Eleanor is just there. Come away, dearest. Come away, yeah, dearest. She's like, and, no, I can't even. Like I can't even walk up to these people and talk to them. No, I wrote in my live blog too. I was like, thank. What I was feeling at the time was, thank God, Eleanor is there with her. Otherwise, what would Marianne have done? She would have just she stood there and shot. Yeah, she ran up to him in a dance. I was like, well, you don't shake my hand. And then when he tried to like give her the smooth, like, oh yes, you know, thank you for that information and try to like preserve, she would have just run right up to him. Yes. What does Brandon call it? The, her impulsive sweetness of temper is what he calls it in the movie. And you could sort of see the impulsivity of um, the sort of bipolarity of her uh, character there. And, um, you know, and then the, the scene when it all bursts on her, is so um, emotional and, and oh, when she um, gets the letter, she writes that letter, the letter, the frantic letter, which has the famous line, right? Like neither of us have anything to say. Um, I, because I conceal nothing and you, or no, you, because, or you, because you communicate nothing. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Um, and then she actually gets a response. Um, and that is when she just like goes hysterical. Right. And, you know, Eleanor, what I found fascinating about this scene is this whole time, Eleanor has been saying to her mother, can you not ask her if they are engaged? Like that means something. Yeah. But when well, we Marianne, about, like, why don't these people just talk to each other? But, but the thing is that when Marianne comes in and says, no, we were not engaged. He's not so unworthy. And yeah. Eleanor Gold is nuclear. And she's like, he made us all we believe he loved you. Us. Yeah, oh, he had that scene. I love that scene. It is so good. Because in, in, in that moment, I mean, the, the the questions that Eleanor has been asking all along, are they engaged? Really, they're meaningless questions because there has been an unspoken promise that everybody is operating under that assumption, even Eleanor. And that's in that moment. She was she's the one who's angry. She's the one who's like, he's broken faith yeah. with all of us. Whether or not they were engaged doesn't matter. Kristen, you have to play the clip of this because otherwise it's going to be me just like trying to reenact. But the way that they both do that, the way yes. that you see marriage, she's like, no, no, we are not engaged. Like she's just losing it, right? 
Like you can see yes. her crossing the line to hysterical. It is best to know what his intentions are at once. Think of what you would have felt if your engagement had carried on for months and months before he chose to put an end to it. We're not engaged. But you wrote to him. I thought then he must have left you with some kind of understanding. No. He's not so unworthy as you think him. Not so unworthy. Did he tell you that he loved you? Yes. No. Never absolutely. It was every day implied, but never declared. Sometimes I thought it had been, but it never was. He's broken no vow. He's broken faith with all of us. He made us all believe he loved you. He did. He did. He loved me as I loved him. <laughs> and then yeah. Emma Thompson, when she grabs the letter, and she's like, he has broken faith with all. Like, oh, it's mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. powerful. It's so good. It gives me chills. It is so good. And um, and then she's just in hysterics and Eleanor's trying to hold on to her on the bed. And then to top it all off, Mrs. Jennings runs in. I just heard everything. Miss Gray. And drops the final bomb of him getting married. She likes olives. <laughs> yes. And then, and then and she does say something, which even, you know, Eleanor says, which is, I better let her get her cry out. Yeah. And then it happens to teenagers, right? Like, yeah. Then she adds the, um, the comedy from the book. They add it just with a couple of lines, but uh, I will whip up something to tempt her. Yeah. yeah, for olives. I had to come straighter. How are you, Miss Marianne? Oh, poor thing. She looks very bad. Tis no wonder, Miss Dashwood, for tis but too true. I was told in the street here by Miss Morton, a very great friend. He is to be married at the end of the month to a Miss Gray with 50,000 pounds. Well, said I, if tis true, then he is a good-for-nothing who's used my young friend abominably ill, and I wish with all my soul that his wife might plague his heart out. <sighs> oh, my dear. He's not the only young man worth having. With your pretty face, you'll never want for admirers. <sighs> Better let her have her cry out, and I'm done with it. I will go look out something to tempt her. Does she care for olives? I cannot tell you. Yeah, I could not tell you. Crazy. <laughs> like, why are you bringing this up right now? <laughs> yeah, I will say, you know, I was kind of bummed that they leave out the wine drinking because that is really yeah. That is a great moment for That's Eleanor. A great moment. Um, they had it in the play that we saw and it was hilarious. It was, <laughs> it was just as funny as it is in the book because she hands her the wine. She's like, you know, give this to her, brought it up. And Eleanor kind of looks at Marianne, like just crying hysterically. And it's just like, and <laughs> it was really well done. And I kind of missed that. Um, I kind of missed that from, but I think, so the thing is with Marianne, like this is how we talk about Marianne being your typical teenager and they like get as, Oh, the world is over. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Oh. Um, and so Miss Jennings kind of discounts it, right? Like just let her have her cry out and she'll be fine. But like, they just doesn't realize the depth to which a Marianne actually does feel. It's not like she's just putting it on as a show of emotion. And I think Eleanor knows that and is participating in her sorrow and understands that Marianne can't bear any of Eleanor's sorrow, which is why she, one of the reasons she can't reveal 
Lucy's secret and she can't let Marianne in on the fact of her uh, engagement to Eleanor going off. So that's when, when Edward finally comes to the house, Lucy and Eleanor are there. Um, When he leaves, Marianne says to Eleanor, she she was like, why did you not press him to stay? His reason for leaving was no doubt your coldness. And it was just another twist in Eleanor's heart because she can't, you know, it's like getting it on all sides. That Um, is seriously like the most, they they play that so well, all of them, especially Hugh Grant, because if Hugh Grant's good at anything, it's being awkward. Yeah. (laughs) Like he is full on deer in the headlights. (laughs) When he sees Lucy and, and Eleanor are in the same room and he is just like, you can see that he is like plotting, like, how do I get out of here? Mm-hmm. Like, just get me out of here, please, God. If you could dream, like, if you could wish yourself to teleport, it's one of yeah. those moments where he's like, I'll give you anything if you just like get me out of this room. It's a great moment where they finally, he's standing there awkwardly for a long time. He finally sits down for like a beat. And then he immediately stands up again. He's like, I gotta go. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, Lucy finagles away to get him to walk her home. And he's like, Oh, it would be an honor. Um, Um, If we could jump ahead a little bit. um, Speaking of the sisters and how they, you know, respect each other's, how much they do feel when Mrs. Jennings comes in and tells like when, so we have the moment where Lucy confesses to Fanny that she's engaged to Edward and Fanny like loses it. And it's a mish like grabs her nose and like throws her out of the door. And like, they do the like girl bat yeah. thing. Yep, yep. And then she's like, stop. And then she just grabs, grabs her, her nose. nose. Oh, great. Oh, it's great. Um, but then of course that like, you see Mrs. Jennings then running down the street with the gossip. Yeah. Yeah. And she busts in on Eleanor and Mary. And I think they're packing to go on the next stage of their trip. And she goes, it's all over. Everybody knows like Lucy was engaged to Edward. And of course this is news to Marianne and, but Eleanor's known. And then Mrs. Jennings leaves and Marianne just looks at Eleanor and she just says, how long have you known? She knows she can tell just by looking at her. She like, there's none of this. Oh my God. Are you all right? Like she just knows by looking at her face that she Mm -hmm. already knew. Well, she has that amazing line because she, she keeps, she's like, okay, Marianne's going to freak out. And so she says this wise thing. She's like, after all, Marianne, after all that is bewitching in the idea of our happiness, de- entirely depending on one person, it was not always possible. And that's when Eleanor says, always duty and honor and prudence. And she puts her hands on either side of Emma Thompson's face and says, Eleanor, where is your heart? Where and is that's your- the last straw. She's like, where is your heart? Dare you. Oh, you know what happened Marianne? Oh, I love it, though. I love it that she kind of just calls her out. All of my suffering for me, all of my suffering over you because of how much I care about you, it's all on me. What do you know? What do you know of my heart? What do you know of anything but your own suffering? After all, that is bewitching in the idea of one's happiness entirely depending on one person. It is not always possible. We must accept. Edward will marry Lucy, and you and I will go home. Always resignation and acceptance. Always prudence and honor and duty. Eleanor, where is your heart? What do you know of my heart? What do you know of anything but your own suffering? For weeks, Marianne, I've had this pressing on me without being at liberty to speak of it to a single creature. It was forced on me by the very person whose prior claims ruined all my hopes. 
I have endured her exaltation again and again whilst knowing myself to be divided from Edward forever. Believe me, Marianne, had I not been bound to silence, I could have produced proof enough of a broken heart, even for you. And, and then she great. has like the single tear that runs. Oh, yeah, and then she just cries. It's, it's like kicking a puppy. They did. It's it in the book. She does have a moment of self realization there, doesn't she? Isn't that where she has? She yes. doesn't necessarily stick to it, right? But she does but she have it, and then she apologizes, and she's like, "You're right. I've been so wrapped up in myself." I, and they don't have that. She has she has one little throwaway line, which is "Oh, Eleanor," and she's she's sorry, but she is crying, which is the beauty of that scene. Is that she is really so weak that even though she knows, that's just that moment that we were talking about. The thing is that the brilliance of the novel is that she doesn't just bounce back and she's perfect after that. She's so weak that Eleanor has to comfort her after just finding out that her her love is getting married to someone else. She is the one again comforting Marianne. Yeah. Although to be fair, like she did just yell in her face. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, and you know, we can talk about that scene too with, with Fanny um, uh, getting mad at Lucy Steele. And in this, in the movie, we, they have to make it believable that Lucy would confide that in Fanny and they do a relatively good job. I don't know that I went a hundred percent believe it, but I 90% believe it, but um, they had to cut the character of Nancy slash Ann Steele for time, obviously. And Emma Thompson said that one woman once came up to her and like reamed her out for getting rid of that character. And it was like, how dare you get rid of that? You don't have the time. I mean, come on. <laughs> but it, uh, but um, I thought given the circumstances uh, and the fact that they're making things with feathers and the yeah. feathers go flying. <laughs> so let me, and she's holding like the little Jack Russell Terrier. Right? Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Um, let me tell you about why I think that that actually works. Right. Um, here are my reasons why I find it believable. So they've had a couple scenes earlier where Fanny, like John's like, oh, maybe we should invite this, like the sisters to stay with us. And Fanny is like, but we've, you know, I've already invited Lucy. You could do more good. Like we already know that Fanny's team Lucy basically, and really yeah. likes her. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been established. And then we also know that Fanny is a manipulator. So they're both like manipulating each other because Lucy is trying to get her to ask her about who she's, who the guy is. She has her eyes on. Yeah. But Fanny thinks that she's manipulating Lucy into telling her. And so she's like, I'm so, I'm as silent as the grave. (laughs) And the way they do it is they do a proceeding, like, closer and closer and tighter and tighter shots on the two yes. of their faces alternating yes. as they're like leaning in closer together to share this secret. Yes. And then when Lucy goes, it's your brother, Edward. Viper in my bosom! And then she's like, so great. <laughs> insert clip. There is a young man. Aha, uh-huh, I'm glad to hear of it. Is your good fortune and breeding? Of both. But his family would certainly oppose the match. Hush. They will allow it as soon as they see you, my dear. It is a very great secret. I've told nobody in the world for fear of discovery. I am the soul of discretion. If I dare tell, I can assure you 
I am as silent as the grave. It's you. My mother, my father! I will. And they're just screaming and fighting. Oh my God. It's Stop so this. Great. I don't expect that. Because they are so proper and polite. You don't expect them to punch you, like to have Fanny, the like girl fight. Her. Yeah, the girl fight. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it's a great scene. And then they, they finally go back. They get into the Palmer's carriage. Oh, Mrs. Palmer does not shut up for the entirety of the trip. And all Mary maybe Ann. Maybe that is the thing where she tells her about the house. I thought it was earlier. I can't remember. Now I think I might have been wrong. I think it might have been on that trip that she mentions the house. Yes. Um, she does mention the house on the trip <laughs> back from London. That's kind of what I thought you were talking about, but it's okay. But oh, yeah. Yes, that's exactly what I was talking about. But yeah, anyway, um, they go back to Cum Magna. And even though Marianne has just had this realization oh. about how. Cleveland, like, Kristen. Cleveland. Kristen. My bad. My bad. Cum Magna is well, Cleveland Rock. <laughs> yeah they go back to, to cleveland and all the little chicks with the crimson lips say cleveland rock okay sorry so and marianne even though she's just had, had this realization of how what a burden she's been on eleanor she can't help herself she goes to the top of the hill she looks for a walk. i just need to go for a walk i'll feel better mm-hmm. she knows in the pouring rain um, and you know, in the book, it's just silly. She, she goes, she walks around, she gets her wet feet and she sits around yeah. and then she gets sick. And it's, it's not silly the way it's written. It's silly the way Marianne behaves, but it's not dramatic the way Marianne behaves. But in the yeah. movie, they take it even up a notch and it's like this glorious die for love kind of thing where she's not trying to commit suicide, but she is trying to not care about anything, but Willoughby when she goes it's up on the hill, rain. she's on this hill. She recites the reciting play. Shakespeare. It's over Willoughby. the top. Willoughby. But then yes. Brandon has to find her and carry her in, in a nice parallel with Willoughby finding her the first time. Yeah, that's true. And he's always, you know, that's sort of like the metaphorical journey too, bringing her back from the brink, you yeah. know, caring so much about um, her. So they show while she's presumably missing, like they send Brandon to look for her and Eleanor and Mr. And Mrs. Palmer are having tea because they're, they're worried. Um, and I think, is it Mr. Palmer who says, don't worry, Brandon will find her. I think we all we know where guess. she went. Exactly. Yeah. And then Mrs. Palmer, Charlotte has, and Melvin's son has this moment where she's like, Oh, <laughs> it's, not funny. it's not played for laughs, but it's just yeah. like her character is so clueless that she actually didn't. No. And she's like, oh, right. I get it. And Brandon bursts in in a genuinely romantic moment where he's like heaving and tired. Every time he came on screen and screen. Because, you know, know, Kate Winslet weighs so much that (laughs) (laughs) it's like Bodie Marlin. Like, you got to. <laughs> well, he's also at death's door with age, so I guess he, we can oh, yeah. forgive him. I wonder if his rheumatism flared up from carrying her for so long. <laughs> um, I I thought that was I don't know. He's such a romantic figure in this. I thought Alan Rickman. He's just whenever he's on screen, you just like <sighs> yes. And do he's, you notice he's not playing a villain for once? When he he's not what playing a villain for once. Oh, playing a villain. He, 
Do you notice when he carries her in and he's exhausted, but everyone swarms her and takes her away? And he, his knees. Yes, he falls to his knees. Right? It's once again all about Marianne. And, um, you know, then it moves into the, the situation. Doesn't the camera pan Eleanor... away and he's left yes. Like alone? Yes. In the entryway? Yes. Yeah. It's like, once again, I've borne this burden of this woman who needs me. And, you know, but this time he actually has brought her back from the brink. Um, well, Eleanor and Brandon are very similar. And so that's why a lot of people, I think, think they should get together. But basically, they both spend their time, like, with taking care of Marianne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so then everybody leaves for different reasons. Colonel Brandon goes to fetch Marianne's mother. Eleanor is left, and and this is not in the book. So instead of oh, Willoughby coming, so beautiful, right? Her monologue, it's so beautiful. Man, that's some first class acting right there. But I, I don't. Oh, that yeah. scene has never failed to make me cry, no matter how many times <laughs> I watch it. Just the the quality and inflection, even of the of the delivery. So the doctor says, "You must prepare yourself," and he leaves. And Eleanor has a breakdown. And she says, Marianne, please, please try, please try. And and holds her hand and kisses it and says, dearest, please try. And then whispers, do not leave me alone. Marianne, Marianne, please try. Yeah. And you realize how much she's lost over these past, you know, months. And the, how part she's- that, the part about that that always gets to me is the, again, like it's a tightening of the shot. Yes. I think it's like, it's a single tracking shot and it's a tightening of the shot on her until the end. It's just her face. And she's got Marianne's hands like this. Mm-hmm. And when she says, don't leave me alone, she like looks, she's terrified. Yes. 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 So yes. afraid. Almost childlike. And, and it's, it's hard to watch. It makes me think, it may, I mean, not to draw an uncomfortable illusion, but we, we talk about Marianne's depression and her, her lack of care for her own health and her sort of passive su- suicidality. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it always, it brings to mind, not to take you to a dark place, David Foster Wallace, um, he committed suicide. It, he was like, this, you know who he is. He's this genius author. And, when they were in, they were talking to her, her sister, his sister afterwards, and she says, "Sometimes I'm so angry. I just think, why couldn't he have just hung on just for us, just a little for bit us. longer?" Yeah. And then she said, "But well, I, I really, sort of, 
it's sort you know, of to, a very selfish act, right? Because you don't see. Yeah. But to vindicate her, to vindicate her, not I have to say her whole quote because I don't want to like make paint her with this this brush. She to vindicate her, she said. Then I realized that he was doing every day. He was hanging up on for us and the amount of effort yeah. that he made. But in this is sort of a, a parallel in that when people are so um, sick and so you know you there's a toll taken on the survivors as well. Well, we already know that Marianne had this romantic idea of like, what could be more romantic than to die for love, to like die in a broken heart. And like the reality of that is it's not romantic at all. It's wasteful and selfish and stupid, right? Because there are other people that need you. Yeah. Um, And are like, well, she had her mom, she had Margaret, but like, that's not the point. She doesn't have people that she opens up to and talks to. And I think if anyone has been by the bedside of a family member or like their best friend who has been in a like critically ill like that, you totally just get it. You just understand her fate. I was telling Bay when we were watching it because we basically talked through the whole movie, right? Um, <laughs> I, I've taken care of my mom at several points where she had some very severe illness and the Eleanor's face, she's so scared. And like when she's talking to the doctor, um, that those scenes for me were very difficult to watch because I have made that face. I have been in that situation. It's the scariest. You'd make any deal. You'd do anything. You'd make any, you may not be religious, but you will like, God, if you do this, I promise I will do fill in the blank. You know, you will bargain. You do anything. It would feel like you were alone if something happened, even though you wouldn't technically be. So this movie like resonated again with me as an adult now a lot as I'm older and I think we lost Kristen again I'm back <laughs> I just told this beautiful story I'm so sorry were you there or were you just being quiet no I wasn't there I got lost right when you were saying you would make any deal uh I told this beautiful story and Kristen was just like got her internet was spotty I'm so sorry I will see it I will hear it when I edit the podcast and okay. I probably we probably it. edit out the part where I'm like wait Kristen are you there <laughs> <laughs> you can put it in the end as a like Easter <laughs> yeah but that, that we didn't have a viewer earlier we don't have any viewers right now but we actually did have a viewer for a little while so that was exciting oh wow well, I wonder why they left probably because they were like well these people are suck <laughs> Well, it's uh, getting late, so we- yeah. That that for me, there's only one other thing we need to talk about, and that is when um so we, when when Edward comes and when the whole finale happens. And um, okay, I, well, before we get to that, I just want to mention that Willoughby does. We said earlier, but Willoughby does not show up at Cleveland. Yes, and when we go back to the recuperation, Marianne is there with Alan Rickman, and having lost Alan Rickman, I posted something on my personal Facebook page about this about him and his voice in that scene where he's reading to her. Oh my God. He could like read the phone book to me and I wouldn't care. Oh, right. But one of the lines oh. he reads is uh, that, that there is nothing lost that can be found if sought. For whatsoever from one place doth fall is with the tide unto another broad. For there is nothing lost that may be found if sought. And it's sort of saying to her, 
it's lost. You can never find Willoughby through yeah. that labyrinth again. It's time to look forward. And and she's almost like childlike, a childlike dependence on him where she's like, when are you, where are you going? Where are you going? When are you coming back? Yeah. Yeah. And he has sort of, he does sort of like a dad jokey sort of rapport with her where he's like, no. It's a secret. <laughs> What's that? When when she's like, well, where are you going? He's like, oh, that's it. It's a secret. That's it. Boop. Yeah. It's cute. It, it shows him like, I mean, remember the first time that we saw him, he kind of made a joke where, where with Margaret, right? Where she was like, oh, what are the East Indies? And he's like, the air is full of spice. And that's another but reason. It, just, it humanizes Brandon. Like he, yes. he can tease Marianne. Like he yes. feels comfortable now. Yes. That's true. Her. And um, so he brings her the piano and oh, they're all. That. It was so cute. It is very cute and very sweet. And so you get this good feeling about Marianne and Brandon. And then a guy comes riding down the road on his horse and they're all outside. And um, Margaret stands up and goes, Edward. And so clearly he's seen them, but they all have to run inside and pretend like they're doing embroidery. Right. Inside. Like, oh, like act natural. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Act natural. They do this act natural kind of thing. So much of Regency manners though, it seems like are, you ha- you like do this you try to look natural when you everyone is aware that it is the pose like when you have to try to finagle getting the girl alone oh yeah like in part of this right like Kid, but now that you mention it i do remember <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. why are you winking at me like everybody knows yes but you just can't say yeah, but enough. everybody knows. <laughs> we saw you run in the house. <laughs> Yet we have to pretend we're deep in the middle of our embroidery project. Yeah. And so because he has to be announced, right? So the maid announces him. He comes right. in. He. They say, you know, they make awkward conversation. We're enjoying very oh fine weather, right? With the mom, they think he's married. They just got. He just got married. So Mrs. Dashwood walks up to him and goes. I wish you great joy. And like, uh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and then he it's sits like down. Stilted. You wouldn't say that to someone. No, who wasn't no. married, right? So he's just like, uh, okay, thank you. He's still, yeah, exactly. I mean, he still doesn't catch on. Then he sits down, and I don't know if you, I have, I saw this movie many times before I caught this. He sits down, and then he pulls, he pulls embroidery out, yeah, out from yeah, underneath. Yeah, circle things, and like hands it to somebody else, and then it all comes out. And he relates the story. He plays with the little figurines, you know, on the mantelpiece. And he's talking about the transfer of his, their, her affection, Lucy Steele's affections to Robert Ferris. And I like him. He says, well, it seems they were, you know, much thrown together in London. You know, like naturally this kind of thing will happen. And, um, and the, the tension is just, just, he bring just back, building. Did he say like he, she set her cap to him? That might have been the play. I can't remember if that came back in the movie or not. I now don't it's think so. Okay, in the play, when he when Edward explains, he actually says because I think um, someone talks to Marianne earlier about setting her cap yes. towards Brandon. Yes. Like I assure you, I do not mean to set my cap towards anyone. Yes. And Edward actually says when he's explaining, he said, "Lucy, then what is the phrase? Set her cap towards him." Uh, like once he and once Robert inherited, I thought that was it. But that was yeah, because that's, that's exactly what she did to bring it full circle. But um. Then Eleanor stands up and says, oh, yeah. then 
you are not married. And he says, no. And she just, yes, she makes this sound. (laughs) This clip. clip. (laughs) Mrs. Robert Ferris. Yes. I, um, I I received a a letter from Miss Steele, Mrs. Ferris, I I should say, um, uh, communicating to me the, um, the, the, the transfer of her affections to my brother, Robert. Um, it, it seems they were much thrown together in, in London, and um, in view of, of, of the change in my circumstances, I, I felt it um, only right that she be released from our engagement. Uh, at any rate, they were married last week and are now in Plymouth. Then you are not married. No. Lucy when I was very young. Had I had an active profession, I should never have felt such an idle, foolish inclination. My behavior at Norland was very wrong. But I convinced myself that you felt any friendship for me. And that it was my heart alone that I was risking. I've come here with no expectations. Only to profess now that I am at liberty to do so that my heart is and always will be yours. Yes, I will include the clip. And the realness of her crying, her ugly cry. She doesn't just get a few tears or like... Ugly cry. Like cry into her full on work yes. because yes. it's like so much. All of the emotion, all of it just pours out of her. And then Marianne and Margaret and Mrs. Dash would just all look at each other and get up and just walk get up and walk out. <laughs> yeah, it's like, but that's like, sort of it's sort of a parallel to the intensity of the emotion where Edward has to get up and walk out. You know, in the book because it's so intense that they just like get up and walk out and they're like, it's all going down now. Like we don't even need to like there's no there's no more time for pretense. Like we were just saying you have this like faux natural Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which they're like, okay, nope, they just get up and walk out like that they need to have their out the window. So boom, there's our discussion of the moody. And I know you have to go to bed. So we can any final thoughts? Oh, I, let me ask you one question. Let me talk to you about one more thing. Okay. Um there is a deleted scene from yes. Sensibility. After the proposal. Okay. Well, first, I just want to say that when he does finally say, like, I just want you to know that you have, like, you will always have my heart or my love. I forget what it is. And she's still crying, but she turns around and she's like happy crying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, like beautiful smile. I just love that. Yeah. Yeah. 
So then there's a deleted scene where she, where Eleanor and Edward are walking by the lake um, after the proposal and they, they kiss and it's very cute. They kiss and then they, their kiss ends in a big hug. And it made me realize you don't actually ever see the two couples kiss in this film. Mm-mm. The two main couples. I don't even miss it. I didn't no. even realize. You don't even think about until it. Until I the scene, you don't get the like kiss payoff, right? Because yeah. in, the, in uh, like American and Western movies, we want the kiss, the payoff. It's the big. All the peak emotions are still there. All of yeah. the, the moment of truth, we love each other emotion is still there. But you don't miss it. You don't, I didn't miss it. You don't feel like, oh, I just wish they'd kiss. Like, you don't. Yeah. No. Because her crying and, and his speech is just as cathartic for me yeah. as finally seeing them kiss. Um, so and we, this I think you see Brandon, like, kiss Mar- when, when they come out of the church and they're married. He, like, takes her hand and kisses it or something. Like. Yeah, Edward and Edward kisses Eleanor. Yeah, it's because they've already been married at this yes. point. Yes. Oh, it's so good. And then there's that yeah. beautiful cake and, like, it's everything you need. Yeah. And of course, and they, they round it all out with one more clever thing where Brandon throws the coins in the air, just bringing the theme of money, you know, right. and how and they fall on the ground. And then Fanny Dashwood is like, yeah, John, like, come on, come on. <laughs> so do you happen to know if that is a real, um, like British wedding tradition at the time? If the like Lord, not necessarily the Lord, but you know what I mean? If the guy who owns the estate that you live on gets married, he would like give like money to the people who are there. I don't know. I'm sure it is. I'm sure one of our wonderful uh, write in and then tell us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> our interns, our unpaid interns around the world. Our unpaid interns, which is like our listeners. <laughs> have to credit. Um, anything else you want to say about the movie? By the way? Are we going to do our usual end of the episode wrap up? Uh, wrap up? Kristen, I think it's time to go down the lane and see what's in our P.O. box at the Wheat Chief. The Wheat Chief. The um, wheat sheet. Let's go to the wheat sheet. <laughs> um, we have, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, we have multiple. Okay, just to clear up confusion for people, we have two of our biggest fans. They're both named Bethany. We've referenced them both by name on the podcast. Um, and so in our, in our wheat sheaf, we have two different things to talk about two different Bethany's. Well, clearly people who are named Bethany are just brilliant, right? Yeah. We have the Bethany audience demographic locked yeah, down. <laughs> All <laughs> Bethany, like the Venn diagram of people named Bethany and the people who listen to our podcast just like fit on top of each other perfectly. Yes. And so now <laughs> I'm thinking about how to differentiate them. And do you think we should just use last initials or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like Mr. I, right? <laughs> so, Bethany D. Hi, Mr. Um, I. <laughs> yeah, hi, Mr. I. I don't know. Hopefully he still listens. Bethany D. emailed us with an article from The Atlantic, uh, which I referenced earlier, re- written by Devany Lucer. And the name may be familiar to you because in our Northanger Abbey episode, I read her uh, Devany Lucer and George, her husband, they have this back and forth about Andrew Davies, where she's like, George, how can you say that? <laughs> You're just wrong. <laughs> but she write, wrote a brilliant article about the changes that Emma Thompson made in the script, how they um, brought the men into a more modern masculinity of, of, of femininity. And it was during a time where our ideas of masculinity were changing. For yeah. example, the best picture winner like the year before had been Braveheart or something. Yeah. And then well, actually, was- actually, Kristen, 
another special feature on my copy of the DVD was Emma Thompson's Golden Globe speech that she wrote oh, yeah. um, when she won the uh, Golden Globe for Best Screenplay. And she was up against the guy who wrote the screenplay for Braveheart. Oh, wow. Um, so it, they were competing in the same year, actually. It was oh, not okay. the year before. So you have, like, hyper-masculinity. Yeah. With Sense and Sensibility. And guess who won? Emma Thompson. Literally. I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, come on. All right. So good. So, and that's, <laughs> that's delightful. If you get a chance to, I think there's, it's on YouTube. Uh, forward, forward that to me again, and I will share it on the Facebook oh, page. Oh yeah. Talk. Okay. I will. Yeah. Excellent. And oh, and so they have also suggested that we differentiate between the Bethany's by calling them thing one and thing two, but I reject that. No, idea. I because I no longer remember who contacted us first and I would want the first person to be, Never mind. It doesn't matter. Rejected, babe. It's just rude. <laughs> it's just rude. Just rude. And um, the other thing is, should we make an announcement about our upcoming episode? We are actually going to have a guest. Yes. Yes. For we're going our, to have a guest. our first anniversary, which I think it went up December 1st. Yes. Was the first anniversary. The first episode got posted on December 1st. So we have a special guest for our one-year anniversary podcast. <laughs> and um so let's announce it yeah let's do it it will be oh it will be we have a, a different fan named bethany bethany c who um has graciously um agreed to join us for our next podcast um congratulations she, she's so a, i'm so sorry <laughs> i know i'm sorry we're both sorry in advance um and uh, she's, she's a big fan, which we really appreciate, again, to all the fans. But she is very interested in um, the Persuasions Online publication from Jasna and has been doing a ton of research, which we really appreciate. And so we're going to do an episode probably, and I'm not trying to commit her or anything, but we've been discussing. It's probably going to have something to do with dress and jewelry in the Regency oh era God. and how, oh, how so they how they are worked through the books and there's a ton of dress and jewelry kind of stuff we could talk about. So, so this is something that I briefly mentioned on our Facebook page when I shared a link to the costumes from the new, there's a French version of beauty and the beast coming out and the costumes are stunning. So Kristen and I, the mission statement of this podcast is that we reject the judgment and notion that you should be judged for liking Jane Austen because it's just bonnets and love stories. And the the follow up to that is that by the way, there's nothing wrong with like bonnets, right? <laughs> That's right. Because or love stories. Uh, so <laughs> this has been like the second theme, and we talked about the um, the website that I really like, um, smart bitches, trashy books. Yeah. Uh, where you know what, like the costumes are really cool. People love historical dramas. Oh yeah. I want to talk about the costumes and jewelry because so much of the the themes of the stories on screen are told in costuming and so much of why, I mean, you had to run around in a corset. Women were literally confined yeah. at the time. It's important. It's um, it, it means a lot and it appears a lot in the stories and that it would have different meanings. And even in, we've talked about in sense sensibility with the hair jewelry, you know, what's up with that. And there are, these things mean something. And so we're very excited. And I, um, I feel like Bethany does not know what she's gotten into, but <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, funny. it's funny she was like well how are we going to structure this and I was like structure <laughs> I think Kristen will sometimes come up with an outline that she'll send to me and I'll briefly look at before like the minute we start recording <laughs> we try listeners we try a little harder than that but 
truly we do a say, lot well, of for stuff. Mansfield Park, because Kristen is like, if it's the book she really likes, like Mansfield Park, she had like a whole freaking dissertation for 40 page outline for us to follow. Yes. Well, and that's too, that's in the beginning where I didn't have any other craziness going on in my life. And I feel bad in that the, the previous books, I didn't, I stopped doing the clips, you know, from the audiobooks and stuff. Um, sometimes I think about that Mansfield Park episode where I used um, the Karen Savage's um, read of my favorite part of Mansfield Park. And I actually yeah. wish that I had left myself reading it in because I put the emphasis in a better spot. Ooh, but anyway, throw down on Karen Savage. I mean, it's such a, I mean, it's just such a short passage. I'm not trying to say she screwed it up or anything, but I read it differently in my head. Okay, that's fair. Anyway, well, we will try. I mean, obviously, since we'll be talking about something that's a little that's more like historically based and things like that, we will prepare for that podcast. Yes. I would hope. We and by we, I mean, Kristen and Bethany will send me what they want me to say, and then I'll make it. <laughs> and then the rest will be and they will come jokes. up with a pun, and that's my contribution. <laughs> <laughs> all right, good. So that's all I had. Did yeah. You have so any? I think we've done. I don't think we have any other new business really. No. Um, we'll take a break for, um, maybe a month or so, but that's not unusual for us, honestly. So Maggie, tell everybody quickly where you're going. She's missing Jasna in DC because she's going on an amazing, yeah, this, is, this is not the irony. Like when I start doing a Jane Austen podcast, Jasna, the Jane Austen, um, society of North America, guess where their annual conferences, Washington, DC, like three miles down the street from me where I could go. And if Kristen still lived here, we could go and maybe do like a live, but unfortunately, we can't because guess who's going to Asia, Mofo? <laughs> so I think we might have mentioned the trip before, but three years ago when I was on a trip to Hawaii on a cruise with some of my friends, we booked a, a follow-up cruise for three years in the future with an Asia itinerary. And those three years are over come October. Wow. Oh, shit. It's October now. Oh, my God. It's already October. Oh, man. Okay. Um, it's so they and I, and two of my other very good friends, we are going to Tokyo and we are getting on a cruise ship in Tokyo and going all around Japan and Taipei, Taiwan and Shanghai, China, and ending up in Hong Kong. And it's going to be like a three week epic trip. And we're super excited. And base says to let you know that he's a kept man. Like he's basically the Willoughby. <laughs> okay. I know he's knocked up any 15 year old, but, um, Basically, his job is to, I have the money and he is handsome. So. <laughs> well, you are the high power. And by me having the money, I mean that I basically worked overtime every weekend for three years oh, to man. save up the trip. Dude. Uh, yes, yeah, so I will be a world traveler. Well, again. be safe, have fun, and uh, take a lot of pictures. Again, Lizzie. Pleasure bent again, are we, Lizzie? <laughs> You're so cute. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay. So I think that's, that's it. Thank you everybody for listening yeah, and we'll talk to you for tuning in and listening to us ramble about one of the, I think is the best adaptation of Jane Austen. It's so, so beloved. Uh, it's fantastic. That list that poured in it, put that put Northanger Abbey on top. Like those, I don't know what they, it's a great movie because people were smoking crack. Like there's yeah, no way. Come on, there's no way. Mm. The the compounded artistry and the guy who wrote the music for this and anyway. Patrick Doyle, who also wrote the score for Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. What up? Wow. Bringing it all together. <laughs> I know a lot about Harry Potter movies as well. That will be a subsequent podcast because Kristen is also a Harry Potter book scholar. You should all know. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. All right, Kristen's been trying to get rid of us for like 10 minutes. So we will I just, off, I can right? be concerned about your sleep. 
Your beauty sleep. Oh, sleep. What is that? What is that? (laughs) All right. So anyway, so (laughs) great talking to y'all and we'll talk to you next time. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye.